0: This morning I'd like to have you turn to John chapter 14. As we come now to the conclusion of this particular chapter and continue to focus our attention upon the things that Jesus is telling his disciples in the most private and intimate manner. Things that are to encourage them (coughs) about what is going to take place in the very immediate future in that very shortly Jesus will go to the cross. But not just what will happen at that particular time, but also what they will be doing and carrying on the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our text for today is in verses 28-31. Let me read that and then we'll, we'll get started. Much has been said. By the way, this is the eighth part of, of, uh, of our studies in, in John 14 alone. So <laughs> that's why I'm not going to go back and review because then we'd be here another half hour reviewing. Jesus said, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the Prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so, I do. Arise, let us go hence. As we come to the end of chapter 14, it is it is always good to remember that uh, there were no chapter or verse designations in any of the Gospels. In fact, in any of the books. Of, of the scriptures, and so uh, keep that in mind that uh, this is just a flowing uh, message that Jesus is giving to his disciples. Chapters 14, 15, and 16. They'll continue on. But there is a, there is a little bit of a distinction in the very fact that at the very end of this particular chapter, Jesus says, let's, let's go hence, and therefore whatever is said after this is gonna be said on the way to Gethsemane in some way. We'll talk about that later. But it's important to remember this because of the flow of what takes place and what's been taking place since the beginning of chapter 13 when Jesus gathered his disciples for the Passover supper. So his message would continue a loving message, an intimate message to the disciples as he prepares them for the cross, which he will face in not too many hours. But before we look at the very last thoughts given by Jesus in this chapter, it is is necessary to consider the statement Jesus spoke prior to the text, and and that is in verse 27, just, just the one verse previous, where he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now we touched briefly on this verse last time, but but let me add just a few more details as part of our review. Because the subject of peace itself can be divided scripturally into three parts. That is peace with God, the peace of God, and the peace from God. Peace with God is something that is fashioned and formed in and through the work of salvation, the work of the cross, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we pointed out last time in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the example that I used had to do with with the very fact that when we are not in love with Jesus, we're not following Christ In fact, we are at war with God. We're at war with Christ. And it isn't until he conquers our hearts and he opens our eyes and we see the cross and we respond to the cross. But even still, it is God conquering us because of the cross and the work of Jesus Christ that the war that we have with God is over. And every time a war is over, there's peace. And peace is declared. That's the kind of peace that Paul is talking about when we're justified by faith. We have peace with God. The war is over. And we've surrendered to the lordship and the rule and the reign of Christ. Something very similar to that is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14-17, through 17, where it says, For he is our peace, who has made both one, speaking of both Jew and Gentile, the hostilities between the Jew and the Gentile. It is Christ who makes them one. Who hath made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself twain of twain one new man, twain being two, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. Peace with God, you see. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity or the hostility thereby. And again, these are term, terms that deal with, with a war, as it were. And came and preached peace to you which are, were afar off, and to them that were nigh. And then there is the peace of God. And the peace of God is that very peace of God himself that points us to Jesus Christ as the very source of peace. As we pointed out, the prophetic name of of Jesus from Isaiah 9, uh, verse six. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But in Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, Paul, again, gives us a little bit of an indication of the importance of the peace of God when he says, be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, and literally it's God's peace. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is so important for us to continue to remember the emphasis of, of, of the peace that is, that is given to us because of Jesus Christ in our lives. Points us always to the Prince of Peace. And then the peace from God is that peace which he gives us to dwell in our hearts and to dwell in the hearts of every believer as he walks day by day in the Lord. We need God's peace. We, we need to be with God's peace, but we need to have God's peace come from him on a daily basis, which is something that Paul talks about practically in every uh, greeting that he gives to, to the churches that he wrote to. Romans 1, verse 7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're never to forget the source of our peace, from God our Father, of peace, pointing to Jesus Christ, peace with God, God's conquering our hearts by his love and grace and the cross. So as I said last time, Jesus then also was using peace as a farewell to his disciples. Peace be unto you, my peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives. And so in effect, Jesus being, of course, Jewish, and his disciples Jewish, and they're celebrating the Passover supper, Jesus was using the Hebrew term shalom as a word of farewell to his disciples. But not without a promise, and not without a pledge. More on the promise and pledge in just a moment. But I'm sure that you know that the word shalom is is the word uh, for hello and for goodbye. But his goodbye would be the comforter's hello. Now the promise, of course, was of the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to give you another comforter. I've been your comforter because I've been among you for three and a half years. But I'm going to my Father, but I'm going to give you another comforter. And the Father is going to give you another comforter. And he's going to be with you. And if you remember last time, Jesus also said, I'm going to be with you. So it's his spirit to be among his own people. So the promise was of the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would be with them, who would come upon them and be in them. It's interesting that the pledge that Jesus gives begins actually in the, at the end of verse 27. Where Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Words that we heard at the beginning of chapter 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And I consider this to be quite a transitional statement because it is the bridge between God's peace and our joy. The joy that we are to have. Which Jesus, by the way, speaks of in verse 28 when he says, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said I go unto the, unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now there is something of great significance to remember here. As you consider what Jesus is saying, again, think about what he's saying. I go away. And I'll come again to you, but if you love me you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. There's something of great significance to remember and it is something that he is in fact dealing with throughout all this time that he's speaking to his disciples. and that is that the storms of life, the storms of life are going to come. The storms of life are going to come the st- The natural fears are going to demand to be seated in the throne of terror, dread, and fear in our hearts. That's the kind of fear that the enemy tries to give to everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Get you to doubt, get you to take your eyes off of the Lord in the midst of whatever trials you may be facing. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. He says it again. Let not your heart be troubled. What the disciples and we are being exhorted and instructed to do is to let Christ's peace drive out the bold and brazen fears of the enemy, allowing Jesus and his peace to rule and to reign within our hearts. So when you put it all together, it all ties very well together. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't be afraid. What's going to happen is that things are going to get really dark as soon as they leave this room where they've celebrated the Passover supper. He's encouraging them to trust him. Then he says, you've heard how I said unto you, I go away. That hasn't changed. I'm going away. And come again unto you. So he says, if you loved me. And, the, and, and there's this understanding here that he's saying, look, you, if, you, if you'll notice, it's, it's past tense. If you loved me. Because you've loved me. Since you've loved me. You should rejoice. And you would rejoice. Because I said I go unto my father. Or unto the father. For my father is greater than I. Jesus was wanting them to to look at things now from his perspective. And I think that every day the Lord is wanting to get us to look at things from his perspective. That's why we need to stay in his word. Because too often man is trying to get their own perspective and they'll take words out of context or verses out of context or statements out of context and say, well, I think this is what God is saying. And we we interject our own thoughts. The Lord says, no, 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 look, look, take my perspective, please. Look at what I'm telling you here. He wants them to look at things from his perspective. If they loved him, they should be filled with joy and express that joy because he was going home. I'm going, to, I'm going home to my father. Oh, they should be rejoicing. Praise the Lord. But let's not forget what, what's been happening throughout these last two chapters. They're like confused, mm-hmm. Deer in the headlight, kind of confused, right? I'm going away. Jesus, where are you going? Where I'm going, you can't come. Why can't I come? Questions were being asked. Statements were being made. Their hearts were being revealed. That they fully paid attention to Jesus they would say, wow, what's going to happen has to happen. Three times in in, in one particular gospel, Jesus said to them, I'm going to go away, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Ah. They just didn't get it. You see, his going home would be an immense blessing and benefit to them as well as to us. But before we look at the benefits to us of his return to his father, let's tackle a statement that Jesus made in this this whole sentence here. He said, for my father is greater than I. This will be how we understand Jesus' perspective. We need to understand this. There's an order, you see, in the Godhead. We've talked about the Godhead, we've talked about the Father, we've talked about the Son, we've talked about the Spirit, but we talk about one God in three persons. So we spoke on this briefly last time, that there are those three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, but only one God, and and all three persons are equal and eternally God, all three. Normally, we designate the Father as the first person, the Son as the second person, and the Holy Spirit as the third person the third person of the the Trinity or the Godhead. And it must be understood that in this order there is no rivalry. There's no rivalry between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Spirit and the Spirit and the the Father. There's, There's no rivalry whatsoever. There is order though. And it must be understood that in this order there is no rivalry and there may be no position or there may be position, Father, Son, Spirit, but no superiority or inferiority in the Godhead. We have to come to grips with that. And so, Jesus' statement, my father is greater than I, was stating a fact that has to do with relationship within the Godhead. And I can tell you this, uh, right now, we as finite beings can't fully comprehend what is infinite. And this is kind of an infinite thing, the work of the Godhead together as one. And if you can't grasp this, you're not alone. So just go like this. Whew. I'm not in trouble. I can't grasp it, but that's okay. One day I will. But what we can understand, what we can understand is that Jesus came to this earth because he was sent by the Father. Now normally we would look at John 3.16 and say, Well, yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish in but have everlasting life. And we look at that phrase for God so loved the world that he gave. And usually when we think of this giving is that he sent his son. He gave him, but he sent him, you see. And Jesus, of course, came voluntarily. Voluntarily to take on flesh. To take on this person that could be seen and touched and heard and followed. The disciples especially John, when he writes in his letters, especially to the church, he talks about, you know, he, he who we can see, he that we can touch, you know, they ate with him, they, 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 they sang with him, they, they, they laughed with him, and they prayed with him. He wasn't a phantom, he wasn't Casper the Friendly Ghost, that just kind of, you know. No, he, he wasn't a phantom. Yet, he was all God. And he proved himself the Messiah time and time again. But if you go to John 13, verse 16, not 316, but 1316, remember what Jesus said there. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And he says this To tell us that everything that Jesus did would be in accordance to a pre-arranged plan whereby the second person of the Godhead, self-existing and uncreating as he was, nonetheless would voluntarily become human and take upon himself flesh and live life on human terms and to live within our own time-space continuum. Which God created, by the way, for us. And in a very unique and inimitable way, Jesus subordinated himself to his Father. And yet, he never ceased being anything less than God. The reason that Jesus could say, my Father is greater than I, was not because the Father was more God than he was, but because Jesus became a man, he was assuming a position of dependence on the Father. What is it that Jesus wants us to do? He wants us to be dependent on the Father. So he came to show us both the Father and how we are to be dependent upon the Father. And although he was God, Jesus didn't come to earth to behave as God. Understand what I mean by that. He came to behave as man, albeit the perfect man, the sinless man, The one true man. Because he was man. He was not just God. He was man. He was not just man. He was God. He was God manifest in flesh. The perfect blending of human and divine. When he spoke these things to his disciples following the Passover supper, Jesus was preparing to go back to his father by way of crucifixion, by way of resurrection, and by way of ascension. He was about to return to heaven bearing a battle-scarred but glorious resurrected body. Battle-scarred. His disciples would be able to see the scars on his body. And yet his glorified body would be taken to the right hand of the Father. And I believe with all of my heart that Jesus was passionate when he told his disciples that they should rejoice if they loved him because he was going home, but not just for himself. They could in no way know why. It would certainly be revealed to them later But there was something of great benefit to them too. And may I say to us, first of all, once ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus would become and would be our great high priest. There's only one place where that phrase, great high priest, is stated and mentioned. And it's in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And it is about Jesus himself. It says in verses 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest, not just a high priest, but a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, well, we know who that is. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our, our, our profession. Let us stand fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Now, those of you who are English majors or teachers teachers or whatever, you would say, there's a double negative here. Right? For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities which means when you you have a double negative the, the double negatives cancel each other out so what he's saying is we have a priest a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and chooses to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities for us Isn't that a wonderful thing? That that, that, that almost just about requires an amen. We have a great high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So it says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How? We need to remember that Jesus today is our great high priest. Secondly, and as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Jesus would also be our advocate with the Father. Our attorney, as it were. Our counsel. And remember again, Isaiah 9.6, it tells us that, you know, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He is our counselor. First John 2, and I'm going to read a little bit more than I did last time, but in verse John 2, verses 1 through 6, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him. And I want to continue reading on because I want you to see the importance of that memory we talked about last week, you know, that the Lord gives us whatever we need to have the memory of God's word. It was the memory that was given to the Apostle John that he remembers everything that Jesus said in that great discourse in the upper room or in the room that they celebrated the Passover supper. He says, hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Three times, Jesus talks about that in John 14. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. And again, Jesus emphasizes this issue of loving the Lord and keeping his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Strength of what Jesus said in that that statement earlier on. He that saith, He abideth in Him, ought, ought Himself also so to walk even as He walked. So, Jesus then, as that example of dependency upon the Father, though He was in unity with the Father as part of the Godhead. Thirdly, The benefit, one of the benefits for the disciples, as well as for us, is that Jesus would be our great intercessor before the Father. Now, in Isaiah 53, you know, that great prophetic statement that is given to us of the Messiah, the suffering servant, At the end of that particular chapter it says therefore in verse 12 Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So already we're given this this picture of of, of this suffering servant who would be an intercessor for us. Because We were the transgressors. You could say specifically that Jesus would would be an intercessor for the transgressors when he on the cross would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, whether the Lord forgave them just because Jesus prayed for them, again, that's in the heart of God to know. The fact that he prayed for them on the cross gives us an indication of the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry as, a, as an intercessor. Paul in Romans 8, verses 26 to 28 said, "'Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, "'for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, "'but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us "'with groanings which cannot be uttered.'" And some of you, some of you may say, "'Well, that's, that's the Spirit interceding.'" Well, yeah, but the Spirit of whom? because it goes on to say this and he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them which are who are the called according to his purpose but if you go down just a few verses to verse 34 then it's made even more clear to us who is he that condemneth it, it is Christ that died yea rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, so we know where Jesus went after the ascension, who was at the right hand of God, doing what? Who also maketh intercession for us. So isn't it wonderful to know that the Spirit is interceding for you and and the Lord Jesus himself is interceding? That's pretty good. And they're interceding before the Father, for you and for me, on our behalf. Now, we have people who pray for us every day. And there are those that we pray for every day. I I would hope we we do that. But let's never forget that Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us before the Father. The Spirit intercedes for us. with Groanings, which cannot be uttered. Oh, interesting. And then we're told in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He ever liveth to make intercession. For us, prayer time comes to an end and we go off and do whatever we have to do, right? Which is okay. You gotta think about your job and your work and the things that you do. But down in here, we can intercede all the time. The Lord brings thoughts to our hearts, brings people to our minds, and now and, and said, "You know what I need to pray. Why am I thinking about that person? I need to pray for them. But He ever liveth to make intercession. Aren't you glad for those benefits of Jesus going back to the Father, be at the right hand of the throne of God, His Father? So the rejoicing that Jesus speaks of is to be built upon the return of Jesus to the Father, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Father's greatness, in sending his only begotten Son to demonstrate his great love and power. But add to this the joy, the joy of a confirmed faith in the proven and verified claims of Christ, that all he predicted will and has come to pass. That's verse 29, the next verse in our text. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. I'm telling you all of these things because it's it's going to come to pass, but when it comes to pass, you will believe. So already he knows. He's telling them now, but there's going to be a time where they're not going to grasp until they grasp. And then when they grasp, they'll know. And then they'll believe. Jesus knew what was, about, what was about to transpire for them. A catastrophic upheaval was about to hit his disciples head on and he was, he was doing everything that he could to bolster, to reinforce, and to encourage their faith so that even if it should falter, afterward, afterward it would be the stronger, as, or they would be the stronger as they recalled this, this incident. So just as he told them that he would leave by death, And we're talking now about this this little critical time following this time that he spends with his disciples. Just as he told them that he would leave by death, he would also go to his father. That That would be the ascension. But in between, he also said that he would return. How did he return to his disciples? By resurrection. So there is that little time right after uh, the supper that this would happen. But then there is an even greater time. He would ascend and leave the earth, and eventually he would come again. Taking us back to to John 14.1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. So he would send his Holy Spirit as another comforter, being that Jesus would remain with his Father until the time to come to receive his body, the church, unto himself, so that where he is, they would be also. And by foretelling these things, the Lord Jesus strengthened. The idea, of course, was to strengthen their faith immensely. As Jesus will say in the next chapter, in John 15, verse 11, he would say, we'll study that later, of course, but these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, And that your joy might be full. So he says what he says with purpose. Yet knowing their hearts all all along. Knowing when they would have faith, when they would not have faith. Knowing when they would trust and when they wouldn't trust. Is that not the same with us today? Today? There are just things that we can't get by Jesus. <laughs> he just knows, doesn't he? And eventually we, we sit before the Lord, you know, in our own quiet uh, closet uh, of prayer, and we sense a few things. Boy, Lord, we can't get anything by you. But I sure thank you that you love me the way you do. Just Change me, Lord. Change my heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit. Give me your vision. Give me your perspective. Oh, that the disciples would have been able to pray that then. But he knew. He knew how dark it was going to be for them. And then think of what he would say to the Father in chapter 17, in verse 13, and now come I to thee. He's speaking to the Father alone. And he says, now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. So joy is a very critical thing to the Lord that they would have and that we would have. In spite of all the things that we may see in this world and in this life, We were so impacted last week because of what happened near San Antonio in a church where one person could have wiped out the whole church and would have if not one person had come to to change that whole scenario. God raised him up. God woke him up. Used. It. How tragic that would have been it was tragic enough as it was. We sit around here today thankful. Thankful for what the Lord does for us. But we might still sit back and say, why? Why did that, why did that happen? Why did you allow that? I can't answer that. I don't know. But God knows. And through it all, the joy of the Lord, as it says in Nehemiah, is our strength. We need to rejoice in the Lord. We're not to base our joy on, 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 on the experiences that we see or not see. Today I'm going to rejoice in the Lord, but boy, after that tragedy, I can't rejoice. The joy of the Lord is our strength. You better rejoice. Being that Jesus is using terminology of prophecy, I thought a thought came to mind uh, concerning prophecy, and, and, and it is the question, what is the purpose of prophecy? What is the purpose of saying something before it happens? Simply stated, it is that you may believe in God. Jesus said that as much in his statement. Verse 29. Consider what God says in Isaiah 44, verses 6-8. to eight. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And and I want to point that little phrase out to you. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel. How many gods is there? There's only one God, right? But what does he say? Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. (laughs) Who's our Redeemer? But there's only one God. Interesting. He says, I am the first and I am the last. That particular phrase in the book of Revelation is used not only of God, it is, of the Father, it is used of Jesus Christ as well. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. First and the last. Hebrews chapter 12, the author and the finisher of our faith. Think about it. I'm the first and I'm the last. Beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appoint the ancient people. Or since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. The things that are coming, let them show it. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it, you are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. In effect, this was what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Practically in the same words. Fear not. Neither be afraid. And then Jesus speaks on the source of security. Today we entitled this message, Joy and Security. If we had, when you connect verse 27 to this last passage of John 14, it's peace, joy, and security. Now Jesus is speaking on the source of security, particularly the security that comes from Jesus' victory over Satan. Consider what he says in verses 30 and 31. He says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you. Well, there's still a couple of chapters to go. But that's not much in, in, in Jesus' terminology. I, I I'm not going to talk much with you. And he tells them why. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do arise, let us go hence. Now, what Jesus had to say to his disciples was now very limited because the enemy was on the move against him through his betrayer, Judas Iscariot. It is highly significant that Jesus, in these two verses, identifies two of our great great spiritual enemies. He identifies the devil and, and the world. Now, John would later, in 1 John chapter 2, show us our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here Jesus points out two, the devil and the world. Back in chapter 12, Jesus made a grand statement about his victory over the world and the devil when he said in verses 31 and 32 of John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, this great act is so necessary for the defeat of the enemy, for the fulfillment of John chapter—I'm sorry, of Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. The crushing of the head of the serpent, the bruising of the heel of Mashiach, the Messiah. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth. What is that? The description of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Jesus was very clear to his disciples that even though the prince of this world was making his move, he had no hold whatsoever on Jesus. Uh, Jesus in effect was saying, the the devil's got nothing on me. Nothing. He had no hold whatsoever on Jesus. He had nothing in him. He had nothing on him. He had no power over him. He had no claim at all over him or on him. The devil could never get a foothold on Jesus. That is what Jesus meant. It was a statement that only Jesus himself could make. Who else could say that? Can any of us say that? Not one of us, even if we believed in Jesus for 50 years or 100 years, but I don't think any of us are quite there yet. Even if we believed in Jesus for 50 years, we we, we would even dare to say anything like that. The prince of this world is the devil. There is still something in us that responds to the devil, isn't there? Isn't this a reason why the Apostle Paul has to write a whole chapter in Ephesians chapter 6? A whole chapter here dealing with the armor of God, saying, Put on the armor of God. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and, and spiritual wickednesses in high places. And every day, you know, we're having to watch, we're having to be vigilant. We have to be careful because the enemy is doing everything he can, going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But not so Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus had nothing like that in him because Jesus knew no sin. Jesus was sinless, spotless, Blameless. Perfect. The enemy would not find a traitor in Jesus. He he tried, remember, beginning of his earthly ministry, the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. Tried. Couldn't do it. And he knew it. We're always on guard. We're always on guard against the wiles of the enemy. Jesus, on the other hand, ain't got nothing on me. Our security in Jesus Christ comes first and foremost from Jesus' victory over Satan. Number one, because in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, For he, Jesus, has made him to be Sin for us, the Father, for he has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in what Jesus said, he was predicting that he would be completely victorious and triumphant over Satan. Colossians 2 verse 15, Paul again, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Where? Where? On the cross. He triumphed over the enemy on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished. The telestai, It is finished. The devil was done. Eternally. Of course, he's still out and doing his travesuras, you know, he's still out there. Still bothering us. But greater is He, our God, who is in us than He that is in this world. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the devil. Ultimately, it'll be all done when, you know, when all this time and this earth and this, this continuum is over. But he defeated the devil. He defeated sin. He defeated hell. He defeated the grave. Our security... Comes from Jesus' obedience to the Father. Our security comes from Jesus being obedient to the Father when it says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. And he goes to the cross. Arise, he said to his disciples, let us go hence. By the way those are words of haste he says let's go let's go out of here now times are wasted the time was nearing he was ready to carry out the will of the father through him somewhere between the upper room and gethsemane the next three chapters would be spoken by jesus first to his disciples chapters 15 16 And then to his father, chapter 17. I leave you with a couple of passages. One is Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. I was going to stop here, but there was one thing that I needed to show you in Hebrews chapter 12. So first of all, let's read Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. I'd like to leave you with encouragement from the word of God. And in verse 15 it says, And let the peace of God, what we were talking about earlier, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. My encouragement to you is, is: is let the peace of God, the peace that has come through the work of Jesus Christ, your peace with God, your the peace of God, the peace from God. Let that peace rule in your hearts. In spite of everything that you see in this world, let His peace rule in you, and be thankful. We're coming up on on Thanksgiving. You know, we, that's it's become you know that that's become the, the time. Not, Okay, we say we give thanks, but you know, it's, 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 it's time to eat. And, and watch, well, unless you're boycotting the NFL, you know, watch football. But uh, I don't want to watch football. Yet we as believers are encouraged to thank God every day. To know the peace of God is is to know that we have something to be very thankful for. Secondly, we need to worship the Lord. Well, first of all, we need to come to His Word, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and all wisdom, which means the way it's going to happen is that you stay in God's Word, and you read God's Word, and you study God's Word, and you pray in the midst of God's Word. And then you worship the Lord and be encouraged by the worship of others as well. It says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, that pretty much puts the cover on everything you do. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. The last thing I want to show you is in Hebrews chapter 12, and and let's do this quickly here because of time. But it's actually in verse 2. We're, to, we're, we're encouraged here to look unto Jesus. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the, the starting line and the finishing line of our faith. It says, who, uh, the author and finisher of our faith, notice this, who for the joy sat before him. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Was the cross the joy? No, because it says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the joy that Jesus told his disciples. If you love me, you would rejoice that I go to the Father, who for the joy said before him, well, it would take the resurrection from the dead, but Jesus was good for that, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Then not only that, but he didn't stay on the earth very much long after that. He ascended into heaven in the very sight of his disciples and many others, to sit at the right hand of the Father. He endured the cross. He endured the cross. He said unto his Father, Eli, Eli, lama Sabakhtani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? In fulfillment of Scripture, Dies on the cross on our behalf. And then he says, It is finished. Then he dies. Gave up the ghost. Buried. Where are his disciples? Where are they? Brings to mind that old, old hymn Were you there when they crucified? My Lord, were you there? The fact of the matter is we were. We're there now. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. But I pray your hearts are not empty. I pray you filled with Jesus Christ and filled with his Holy Spirit. And he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Praise the Lord. The joy that was set before him. If you love me, you would rejoice. Our benefits is... He's our great high priest, he's our advocate now, and he's our intercessor. Amen?